Hey, Islanders, and welcome to episode 48 of the Kameno Voice. On this episode, I get to speak to a Kameno filmmaker, producer, and director. Please welcome Michael Lenau. Hi, I'm Brandon Erickson, and you're listening to the Kameno Voice podcast, where I interview folks around Kameno Island and beyond. If you want to stay up to date on events, businesses, and even hear a little history of this area, subscribe to this podcast and share with your friends. Thanks for listening. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Kameno Voice, where we release a new episode every Tuesday. On this episode, I got to speak to a Kameno film producer who created the film The Fire Below Us, which was a seven-time award-winning documentary focusing on the human aspect of the eruption of Mount St. Helens. Um, But Michael's first professional news job was actually covering the country's attempt to abolish tribal lands. Uh, He was covering the story from the perspective of a Native American who refused to sell his land. Um, He also covered, he's also done uh, documentaries on uh, aspects of racial prejudices in our country, as well as the history of slavery. Um, And this episode was actually recorded uh, days after the death of George Floyd. Uh, My thoughts and prayers go out to his friends and family. This also has brought to the forefront the systemic inequalities that people of color, specifically black people, deal with on a daily basis in our country. Um, It's my belief that everyone should be able to work the same job, make the same pay, uh, and not be treated differently based on the color of their skin. Um, It specifically weighs heavy on my heart uh, and my family's because we have extended family, including nieces, um, who are directly affected by this. Uh, I I would ask that we collectively um, read, listen, and educate ourselves on this subject. Um, I will link a couple books in the uh, show notes if you guys want to check those out. Um, This has been a journey for me as well and, and learning about this. Um, I am not trying to make a political statement. I am simply standing up for people in our country who do not share the same rights that um, we do on a regular basis and simply just because of the color of their skin. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, and uh, so getting back to... So he started with the news story about the abolishing of Native tribes. Uh, and then that was followed by his... Uh, documentary on Mount St. Helens, uh, and he was actually on the mountain for the second eruption of that. And so he shares the entire story, and I was just completely fascinated listening to him as he recalled what they went through, what it was like during that time. Um, and it really did set a trajectory for his life. Um, after he released that documentary, he moved on to other um things surrounding natural disasters, uh, other projects and documentaries. And, and these documentaries that he's worked on have been, like, they take so long to get created. And, um, and, and they, the work that he puts into it is just incredible. Um, the other thing is his storytelling has, is on point. Uh, you can tell he's been doing it for a long time. So uh, really enjoy this, this conversation with Michael. And um, yeah, then he brings us up to speed on some of the things he's doing now. So anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Michael Lee now. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Kameno Voice. Uh, today, I'm here with a Kameno filmmaker, producer, and director, Michael Lee now. Welcome to the podcast. Great, great to be with you, Brandon. All right. So before we get started on everything, tell us a little bit about Michael. Oh, well, gee, I um, can't believe it's been 40 years since Mount St. Helens, but that really shaped my life. And um, really, I think every decis- decision in my life since then, including you know, my wife, and uh, we have uh, 900 children. It seems like that sometimes. Uh, we have four <laughs> biological, five adopted, and then we have uh, four grandchildren and another one on the way. Very cool. Congratulations. Yeah, it's fun. Very fun. All right. So where did you actually grow up? So I grew up mostly in southern Oregon, Klamath Falls, and... Um, uh, it was there when I was about nine years old that I first fell in love with filmmaking. My mother used to make home movies of us kids when we were growing up, but they were quite annoying. She was always moving the camera around and never staying focused on anything. And, and so I, one day I asked her if I could borrow her camera and make movies, but I didn't want to make home movies. I wanted to make real movies. So I found a book in our, our elementary school library called How to Make Fun Home Movies. And in that, they 
they showed how to make people disappear. And I always wanted my little brothers to disappear. So <laughs> I did this in-camera magic trick with my camera, making my little brothers disappear. And I was hooked. I, I, I put a storyline to it and showed it to kids in our neighborhood. And I told my school teacher that I wanted to make movies when I grew up. And so she actually encouraged that. And she let us write scripts and make movies and gave us extra credit in English class. And then she would show the movies to the classroom and in the cafeteria at lunchtime. And word got out that these kids were making movies. Well, guess what? The NBC TV station, in and actually they were located in Medford, Oregon, found out about it. And they hired me to start stringing TV news for them when I was 13 years old. Wow. So by that time, I already had, you know, a few years experience. So, <laughs> so um, I'll never forget my first assignment was uh, U.S. government's attempt to abolish native tribes. And they didn't have any other cameraman in the area. And uh, so they asked me to go cover this event. And um, it turned out to be a big national uh, story. And so my very first assignment was covering the U.S. government attempt to abolish Native tribes, and it focused on one individual Native American who refused to sell his land to the government, and he took a stand against it. And I was so impressed with what he was doing that I spent a lot of my spare time and like almost the whole summer camping out on his tribal land, hearing his stories and uh, documenting it. And wouldn't you know it, five years later, by the time I was 18 years old, I finished my first documentary, and it, it was featured on PBS, and it told the story of this Native American who refused to sell his land. So that got me hooked on filmmaking, but I kind of always wanted to do movies, like in movie theaters, rather than documentaries. Yeah. So, um, so all through junior high and high school, I worked in TV news. Right out of high school, I worked... Uh, for an NBC affiliate and um, worked there for two years. But then I decided it was time to move on to pursue my dreams. And I was uh, about uh, 20 years old then. And um, I was going to go to film school down in, in California. But I'll never forget the day that I saw in the weather section of our newspaper an article that, that mentioned there was some seismic activity around Mount St. Helens that might lead to something volcanic. And when I, when I heard that, I thought, oh, I want to be there with my camera to capture that uh, if and when that happens. So for the next six weeks, I spent most of my time filming early ash and steam eruptions at Mount St. Helens. And as, as the story developed, as the volcano got more and more active, I got hooked. I was there. I wanted to see an eruption. You know, this is very unusual. I, I thought volcanoes only happened in faraway places or back in dinosaur days, not right here practically in my backyard yeah so I, I remember filming some of the early ash and steam eruptions and uh i was able to sell the footage to uh, national news agencies like abc nbc cbs and um then on may 18th when mount st helens erupted in a catastrophic eruption i wasn't there uh probably by the grace of god i was in um, down in my home in, in southern oregon but i the moment it happened, we heard about it, we jumped in the car, grabbed our camera equipment, and headed that way. And uh, one of my friends had done some work with another film company in Seattle, so we called them and asked if they needed any help. And they told me, yes, we need somebody to follow the ash cloud that's headed out into eastern Washington. And we had no idea what that meant at that time, but um, my first assignment was to go to Boeing Field, get in a helicopter, and follow the ash cloud. So we flew right smack into that big black boiling ash cloud and um, the pilot got nervous so we landed in Wa in uh, Vantage, Washington in a restaurant parking lot and people are coming <laughs> out of their homes and coming out scratching their heads going what is going on and I, I looked up at the sky and I saw this big black cloud and it started turning day into night and the street lights started flickering on so the helicopter pilot said this is crazy let's get back to Seattle so we started heading back to Seattle, and uh, helicopters and volcanic ash don't exactly mix well. Yeah. The engine, the engine actually started sputtering and quitting, and the pilot said, relax, I had to do this all the time in Vietnam, and he threw it into auto-gyro, auto-rotate, and he, he was able to maneuver the helicopter, and we saw Interstate 90 below us, 
we landed right on Interstate 90. <laughs> By that time, the police had closed the freeway. And um, um, so uh, not as soon as we, we landed, he said, to jump out, it might catch on fire. Well, I was already out the door, I think, before he even said that <laughs> because I was so scared. Oh, my, my word. My legs were like je- jello. I could hardly even stand up. I was so scared. And um, uh, But we, we landed safely, and um, this this police car came roaring up to us, and the, the, uh, the officer was quite angry at us that we had landed the helicopter in the middle of the freeway, <laughs> but we told him what had happened, and he said, yeah, we've been hit pretty hard here. We had to shut down the freeway. And so uh, he drove me into town. I rented a car and drove back to Seattle with footage. I'll never forget that day. Driving across I-90, not one single car on the freeway, and it was pitch black, and my windshield wipers were scratching with the ash on it. And um, I, I finally made it back to Seattle. The producer grabbed the footage I just shot. He got an airplane. He flew to Southern California. He was on the Johnny Carson show that next night um, where he was talking about Mount St. Helens erupting and showing the footage. Then he came back and he said, hey, I really liked your footage. I'd like you to go into Mount St. Helens with me. I'm like, what does that mean? He says, well, we'll fly in for a few hours, get some shots, and get out of there. Well, that sounds good. So I was telling my mother about this. She said, as your mother, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard you say you want to do. But I'll, I'll be praying for you. That's all I needed to know. Gave, got mom's blessing. She'll be praying for us. So I jumped in you know, and headed off to um, um, work with these guys in Seattle. And then a few days, we made some plans prepared to go into Mount St. Helens. We had no idea what that would be like, but we had been flying around in a helicopter and looking at, you know, really this all this devastating landscape from, from the air, but we didn't know what it was like up close, especially wondering what happened to Harry Truman and uh, Spirit Lake Lodge and, you know, a lot of people that were still missing. So we wanted to see what it was like right in, right on the ground and ground zero where everything was devastated. So so we were the first camera crew to go in and film the devastation from the ground. And the plan was go in for three or four hours, uh, walk around, and then meet the helicopter at a rendezvous point. Well, guess what happened? We, um, we started hiking and uh, realized after a few hours that we were actually walking around in circles. And we were very confused by that. But we looked at our compass and then realized the compass was actually spinning around in circles because the heavy magnetism, the ash, really confused the compass. And so we got disoriented, got lost. Uh, the, the, one of the, the persons that was carrying extra equipment, he had turned the ground-to-air walkie-talkie on and the batteries died. So we weren't able to communicate with our helicopter any longer. And it was getting late in the day probably close to nighttime by this time, and uh, we had to spend the night. So um, uh, uh, that wasn't anything we planned on. Uh, That night was very spooky. Um, I had been in that forest weeks before, and, you know, remember hearing the, the wind blowing through the trees and you hear wildlife and whatever, but there was nothing. It was deathly silent. Wow. And there was a bright full moon that night. And um, uh, the moon shined through and um, uh, bounced off the grayish ash. It just a very eerie feeling and very un- un- unnerving feeling, too. I, I did not. I wanted to get out of there. Yeah. And um, um, anyways, um, we were forced to spend the night. And then at 2.39 a.m., Mount St. Helens erupted in the second largest eruption. We were right underneath it when it blew. And we didn't hear anything. It was totally silent. But people two, three hundred miles away heard the eruption. And I remember um, kind of feeling the atmosphere change and um, uh, just just um, looked up to the sky and we saw brilliant flashes of light. We had no clue what was going on, but the, the static electricity in the ash cloud created three to five mile long sheets of lightning. And that oh. lightning flashed across the sky right over our heads. We were at 5,500-foot elevation, and the volcano's erupting right next to us. We're right underneath it when it's, when it's erupting. And uh, by the grace of God, it was a vertical eruption only, not vertical and horizontal like the first one on May 18th. Right. That devastated the land and killed all the people. We didn't know if it would do that again. We didn't know, you know, we didn't have any clue what was going to happen. And so just that night, you know, just really um, wondering 
if we were going to get out of there alive. Well, then the next morning, what happened is the volcano kind of sucked in all the weather from around. It created its own weather system. The next morning, it was extremely foggy. It was a weather and volcano mixture. In Hawaii, they call it vog. And that was it. Only it was really intense fog. And um, um, I, I remember when all the ash was coming down, I just prayed a very simple prayer. God, help me breathe. And pretty soon it started raining. The rain mixed in with the ash and came down like wet, hot mud falling from the sky, which was better. It cleared out the air so we could breathe. But um, but anyways, that next morning, it was like, we've got to get out of here. But we were 22 miles through devastation to get back to the nearest rescue center or any kind of civilization. And um, so we hiked maybe a whole mile that day, I think. <laughs> we did not get very far because of, of just how incredibly difficult it was climbing up and over all these down trees, the carnage on the ground. And we also, um, um, there was like areas where the, the trees would lay flat and then there were blankets of ash laid over. For some reason, they always asked me, I guess I was the youngest on the crew, to walk across these ash fields first, because what happened is you'd walk across a little bit, and then you'd break through the ash, and your feet would get trapped into the twigs and trees underneath, and you know it was still very hot. When the ash came out of the volcano, it was 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit, and it was still cooling even you know several days later. Right. So uh, it actually burned, somewhat burned. It was more like, more like just really hot hot uh, burning ash but it actually burnt the soles off my boots I had to tie my boots together again with twine and one point I got so deep down into this that I couldn't get myself out and my buddy Joel had to crawl up behind on all fours and help help dig me out of the the ash and that's what it was like trying to struggle it was like a nightmare times 10 oh. um, that you know we, we were trying to uh, get out of how, and, and, and you know, you kind of become delirious during a time like that, too. Yeah. And how, how did you guys, um, like, pick a direction to go? Because, like you were saying before, it was really hard to tell any sort of thing. Did you guys just pick one direction and decide that was what you were going to walk towards? Yeah, exactly. That's a good question. Um, what <laughs> We finally realized that the volcano blasted everything in one direction. If we just followed the trees the way they were laid down, We'd eventually get out of there. Took us a little while to figure that out, but <laughs> but we started, fo you know, following that. And then, you know, also the further we got away from the blast, the less carnage there was. But um, um, you know, it was 256 square miles, and um, you know, up, up to 22 miles away from the volcano was was the scorch zone. Um, you know, I, I don't know how far exactly. At one point, we were only five miles from the volcano, so. It, it was um, you know, pretty devastated around us. And um, um, by this point, Brandon, we were, we were really exhausted. I mean, we had one canteen. We had one little baggie full of uh, gorp, which was peanuts and carob mix. Wow. All of that was gone like the first day. <laughs> but there was, um, there was bubbling streams of fresh water just gurgling up the side of the mountain. So we took that one canteen and kept refilling it. I guess with the, the snowpack and the glaciers and then all the hot ash laid on top of it, they created these fresh little artesian springs that were gurgling up the side of the mountain. Wow. Yeah. Um, so we were able to let the ash settle in the canteen and drink that. So we had, we had water, which was a really good thing. And, um, and, you know, most time I was too scared to even be thinking about anything else. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was during that time that I started really thinking about, wow, what if we never get out of here? And, you know, it, what scared me the most wasn't, um, um, and I, I grew up in a, in a Christian family, but, you know, I went to church on Sunday, went to Sunday school, but I never really thought much about my own faith. And, and it, it wasn't until we were faced with the possibility of never getting out of there that I started even thinking about that. But because I grew up, you know, going to church, I knew there was a heaven and a hell, and I believed in that, but I really... The thing that scared me the most wasn't, am I going to get hit by the volcano? Am I going to die here? It was the question, if I die, am I going to go to heaven or hell? That's the question I couldn't answer. And I struggled with that in my head more than anything else during that time. And yeah. so I started praying. I was just like, God, I know you're real. But God, if you're really real, show me 
show me that and show me how I can believe so that I will be in heaven. And I, I just started praying that. And, and there was one point where we were so exhausted that every muscle, every bone in my body was just aching. And we hadn't slept either for like three days, hadn't really eaten anything. I remember just leaning up against this log. I was so tired. And I just, I don't know, I just fell asleep. And I had this dream or trance or something. I, I literally saw myself lifting up from that spot, leaning against the tree. I can still see it today. I'm leaning against the tree with my backpack on. I'm holding my camera, and uh, and and I just pulling away from that and floating up in the up in the air. And I, I heard this music, and it got louder and louder in my ears. And I looked across this, this large landscape of devastation. All the trees laid over flat, and and I saw this, this um, this person walking towards us. And I, I just fixed my eyes on that person, and he was dragging a tree. Like, what is that guy doing? And as he got closer and closer, he looked like he'd been badly injured, just chunks of his flesh hanging off his face, and he was bloody and beaten, and and uh, like he'd just been through Mount St. Helens or worse. <laughs> and as he got close to me, I realized it was Jesus, and he was walking towards me, and he stopped, and he looked at me, and his eyes looked right into my eyes, and I just felt this surge of energy, a surge of, I don't know, whatever, love come into my body and woke me up from this trance, this dream, whatever I was in. And I felt like I had a full breakfast. I felt like I had a full night's sleep. I just got up and I started hiking. And the other guys got up and they started following me. And we found this little natural cave. And it was a whole bunch of trees blasted against the side of a hill. And we were able to crawl into that cave and try to get dry and try to get out of the weather. And, and um, um, I remember um, I, I had this little pocket Bible that my father had given me before I went in there, just a little tiny New Testament um, pocket Bible. And yeah. I forgot I even had it until that moment. And I just thought, wow, uh, I need some encouragement right now. And I just blindly opened it up. And I was like hoping for some words that would encourage me. Instead, I woke, I opened up to where it said, for your sake, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered all day long. <laughs> now, that was not very encouraging. And, uh, but I read on, it said, no, in all these things, neither height nor depth nor all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And when I read that, and after that experience I just had, I had that total peace that no matter what happened to me, whether I lived or I died, that I would be, I'd be with God. You know, there's a better place, a better world, definitely a better world than what I was experiencing there at Mount St. Helens. Yeah. And um, for the for the rest of the time, I had total peace that we were going to be okay and that I was, you know, uh, but uh, it was pretty, pretty nerve wracking up until that, that point. And then um, even then we had some struggles. That night, there was an avalanche that came down, almost buried us. Uh, all the the the, uh, the heavy ash had been mixing in with the weather, and it just created this big mud flow that came down and almost almost buried us. But we were able to scramble out of that little shelter and, and then keep keep hiking. We found another shelter then and hunkered down in there the next the next night, um, towards the next the next evening actually, and we. Managed to scrunch together a little fire, and it was really hard to get a fire going because everything was blasted away, and it took a lot of energy to even try to find firewood and try to make a fire. And we finally got a little fire going, and I thought in my mind I was hearing helicopters, and now the whole time we've been listening carefully for helicopters, and that's what we, it was our sign of rescue, you know. So, um, anyways, we um, we jumped out of that thing, and sure enough, for the first time, the weather lifted just enough where we looked down the Green River and we could see these two helicopters flying up and down the river. And as they were, uh, and then we saw them leaving off to our left. And when we saw them leaving, like, oh no, another night here. And I was just so discouraged. I said, I don't know if we can handle another night here. So I just, I was at that point, I fell down my hands and I said, Lord, I'm 20 years old. I'll dedicate the rest of my life to serving you if you get us out of this mess we got ourselves into. <laughs> And I don't know how much time went on, but I heard this voice audibly speak to me, and it scared me. There's nobody else. Everybody else gone back to the shelter. And it said, Michael, look up to your left. That's all it said. And I looked over to my left. I saw the down trees, the forest laid flat, and one tree 
kind of broke in the shape of a cross. And I just stayed fixed on that 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 direction. And, it, and exactly where I was looking, the, I saw the blades of a helicopter rise, and they came right over the ridge. And they saw me standing out there, and they circled around, and then they threw down these flares, and they took off to try to find a place to land. They finally found a place way up high above us, and these guys wearing these big orange flight jackets came running down to us, and they said, you, you don't know how happy we are to find you. as you want to make a bet? <laughs> they, they, they said it, it, was, it was like trying to find a needle in a haystack trying to find us because, you know, they, they kind of knew the area we were in, but they didn't know if we were alive or dead. And I think, I think we might have been the first live rescue they had done. They had been pulling out, you know, people that did, did not make it from the first eruption, you know. Right. And um, so um, uh, they said, we have to hurry up. We only have a 20-minute window, and weather's coming back in again. Then we'll all be spending the night. So by that time, two of the guys on our team had gotten completely blinded by ash. They kept rubbing their eyes. And I remember my mother always <sighs> said, if you get anything in your eye, don't rub it. And so um, um, I, um, I just would tear it out. I had these eye drops. And as the more I put it, eye drops in my eyes, it would just burn like crazy. But it kept my eyes from getting scratched. And what happened is they rubbed the outer layer of their eye off and ah. they went blind. So they had to be led to the helicopter by the pararescue teams. And then we all got to the helicopter. Unfortunately, there was two helicopters there. And we were all able to, to be evacuated out of there. I'll never forget the moment the helicopter started lifting off the ground. I just sensed a voice inside of me say, I didn't do this for you. I did this so that so that uh, my name would be glorified, and that was the Lord. Mm-hmm. And um, that was the beginning of, you know, really a new life for me and a new life of faith, too. So it really had a very humbling experience, very humbling impact on my life. And, you know, my life was all about heading off to go make movies in Hollywood and <laughs> do that. But none of that seemed to matter anymore. What mattered now was just living my life, you know, for things that were really meaningful, you know, from that point on. Yeah. So that was a yep. That was what I remember. That was clear as like it happened last week to me. Even that was forty years ago. Wow. So did uh, so as you guys were, you know, you guys got rescued. You landed. What was like? What was that like? The first things you guys did when you guys finally landed away from the mountain and everything. Yeah. So they took us to the Toledo Rescue Center, and um, there were. Uh, military medical people. They, they had a um, paramedic on the helicopter, and they were, he was taking my vitals. He just looked at me with real wide eyes. He goes, "Wow, you're really fortunate to be alive, and you're fortunate to be out of there because you know we've been suffering from hypothermia, you know, quite a bit up to that point." And um, so uh, we we land on the ground, and this news media was just everywhere. We were, we, I, you know, we didn't realize it, but we became the story because we've been trapped up there now for four days. And uh, lost uh, it was all over the news that we were that we were lost up there, and um, you know the military had called my mother said your son is missing presumed dead and she said no he's not he'll be okay. <laughs> she got on the phone and called her prayer chain and got everybody praying for us you know and <laughs> it was my mother's prayers that really really helped us there and um, uh, but anyways the news media wanted to know what it was like and um, the producer who hired me, um, I was the cameraman. Uh, he worked out a deal with, with, I think it was ABC News, to have exclusive rights to the footage, but they asked if the guy who shot it all could go with them to Portland, Oregon, to uh, edit the film. So everybody else, the other four guys on the, on the crew, all went to Seattle, and I had to go to Portland to edit film that night. <laughs> and I remember they, they took me to the edit room, and, and you know, they, they edit, they process, this is days of 16 millimeter film process the film we're editing it they're asking me all these questions and i just was kind of incoherent you know trying to piece it together what had happened to us and whatever and um and i said you know what guys i haven't eaten in like four days i haven't slept in four days you go, oh wow okay here's a takeout menu you know and so my first meal was a hamburger and then i um then they put me up in a hotel there the next morning i woke up opened my door and the whole hallway was filled with news media and everybody wanted to know what it was like for us. And Portland, Oregon was the headquarters for most of the national media. Okay. And so, um, so and I was the only one of our team that was there in Portland. So, um, 
So one after another, they started asking questions, and I found it kind of hard to articulate what had happened to us. It just, you know, I was in shock still from it all. I'll never forget, one reporter sat down and said, I know something spiritual happened to you there, and I want to know about it. How she knew that, I don't know, because I hadn't told anybody yet anything that happened to me spiritually. And so that helped kind of prompt my memory, and I, I started coming out about what had happened and how it, how it really changed my life. And it even still took me time after that to kind of put the pieces together and just even watching the film footage of us, um, you know, helped help with that too. So, um, you know, it's been 40 years, almost every year, I go back to Mount St. Helens and look at the changes that have happened there, been documented ever since then. Um, you know, I had a lot of people asking me questions um, about not only what happened there, but what about the other Cascade volcanoes, because it kind of raised the eyebrows of the Pacific Northwest and the world to the fact that the United States has active volcanoes right in its backyard. Yeah. And, um, um, you know, we did a film called uh, Keeper of the Fire that, that this producer in Seattle had produced, and it became you know, a pretty huge film. They... Um, they put a, a temporary theater up at the Puyallup Fair, and um, uh, it was uh, playing down in Seattle quite a bit. So everybody was fascinated with the story and wanted to know about it. Um, but but I never felt like anybody really told the human story of what it was like to experience volcanic eruption, what it was like for people that survived the May 18th eruption. I mean, we were there on the second eruption, and we you know we were survivors more of the um, uh, survival after the eruption where we weren't hit directly with the blast wave like the people on May 18th. Yeah. So I set up my camera, start finding those people and interviewing them. And I started piecing together a film. Um, it took me almost 10 years of finding those people and piecing together a movie called the fire below us, remembering Mount St. Helens. And, um, one of the people I interviewed was James Shamanke, and he was one of the, the loggers that had been uh, preparing uh, logging operations for the next morning. Now, by the grace of God, Mount St. Helens erupted at 8.32 a.m. on May 18th, which was a Sunday morning. If it had erupted on Monday morning, there would have been 1,100 loggers working up there. Wow. So he was one of the logging team that were preparing things for that, that next, door, next day logging. And he was the only survivor of, of, of the four, five of them. And uh, no, four of them, the other three had died. And um, so he had a very hard time articulating what had happened. Um, just because it's otherworldly, it's hard to find language for it. And um, uh, I, I asked him if he would do an interview. He refused at first. And I, I just started telling him about my experience and he started relating to it. He says, okay, yes, I'll, I'll talk to you. Because I could help him put language to what happened to him. Yeah. Just the hot ash and the struggle and and everything. And because he he was in a in a ravine where they didn't even see the mountain blow. All they knew was that this huge wall of of um, of pulverized rock and heat hit them and you know knocked the knocked down the trees all around them. And um, so I asked him if he'd go back to Mount St. Helens with me, and he agreed to do that. And I drove him up the highway. We came around a corner. We got out to take a picture, and he looked up towards Mount St. Helens. He goes, oh, my God, where did the mountain go? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, uh, where's the top of the mountain? <laughs> he had no idea that the 1,300 feet of the top of Mount St. Helens had been blasted away because he had never seen it. He never even watched any news or anything in all of that time. So um, it was quite a healing process, I think, for him to go back and to face it. And um, I asked him if he wanted to do a memorial to his buddies that had died there. And he, he made these crosses, and we placed the crosses at this very place where they had been hit by the volcano and where they had died, um, you know, so many years earlier. And um, so we finished the film as an independent film, and I had an agent in New York who had a deal with the Discovery Channel, but uh, I just didn't feel good about it. So I picked up the phone, I called National Geographic, and they immediately offered me five times more, and... And uh, National Geographic picked it up and ran it, and it, it became uh, one of the longest-running, most requested, highest-rated independent documentaries in National Geographic history. It ran for nine years on National Geographic. They relicensed it uh, every three years. And, wow. Um, wow. I, I, and, I, and it had, um, you know, my story of prayer and faith in it, and, and um, uh, I think people were fascinated by 
the human side of the story because it's really hard for us to relate to the science. It's hard for us to relate to big catastrophic events except for through the human experience. And so that's what that's what I think you know made that that film so different. And it's because of my personal uh, you know experience with it that I was able to bring that to it. So that's what I've tried to do with every one of my films since then. And uh, it was after that film released on National Geographic, people started asking me, oh, what about Mount Rainier? What about Mount Baker and Glacier Peak and all these other volcanoes right in our backyard here? So uh, one of the scientists I had met, he wrote a book called Fire and Ice, and it later became Fire Mountains of the West. Uh, we did a tour of all the Cascade volcanoes. Uh, we started at Mount Lassen in Northern California and went to Mount Shasta and all the way up to Mount Baker. And he talks about each one of the volcanoes and what they've done in the past and what they're likely to do in the future. And every one of these volcanoes is an active volcano. So we did a film called Fire Mountains of the West. And it was while I was doing that film that one of the volcanologists told me he was changing his focus from volcanology to seismology. And I said, well, why? What do earthquakes have to do with volcanoes? He said, well, because Mount St. Helens erupted so catastrophically, it caught us off guard. And, and the process that was fueling Mount St. Helens, we thought was relatively smooth and it wasn't cre gonna create big eruptions like that. We thought that was something that happened in the past. So they had to look into that. And, and, and the greater threat, not of volcanoes, but of this subduction zone that was fueling the Cascade volcanoes was gonna trigger someday a magnitude nine or greater earthquake that was gonna trigger you know, uh, earthquake that would last four to six minutes and then trigger tsunamis that would be uh, hitting the coastline within two to 20 minutes. That would be, you know, 30 to 90 feet high, in some places even 200 feet high. And um, this was all news to me. I'd never heard this before, and it was never taught in geology class or anywhere else. So I went off my camera along with these scientists as they were discovering the Cascadia subduction zone. So for, I think, almost eight years, I followed them in their discovery of this. I even went down in a submarine down the bottom of the ocean looking at earthquake faults and, and signs of these earthquakes and um, put together my film. I couldn't get any interest. Nobody was interested in earthquakes in the Northwest. But I knew this was urgent. I knew it was something people needed to prepare for because of my experience at Mount St. Helens and how catastrophically geologic disasters can be. Yeah. And, um, um, so um, PBS picked it up, distributed it nationally, and um, they, they uh, um, you know, got some interest. And then, and then two weeks later, the Indian Ocean Sumatra earthquake tsunami happened, killing almost 300,000 people. And people were asking questions, could this ever happen in America? And here was a film already done, already in distribution. So PBS reran the film, and it became the highest rated science program in PBS history on Science Night. And people were intensely interested now in something that could happen in their backyard. So then I uh, got the interest from FEMA and USGS and the programs I was doing. And they asked me if I would do some things on disaster preparedness. So uh, we knew we needed to prepare, help people prepare for these earthquakes because everybody was calling PBS and saying, oh, what's the use? We're all going to die. And that wasn't the message we wanted people to get. We wanted them to understand what the threat was, that the threat was real, but there are things you can do to prepare for that threat too, because it's gonna be a long-term disaster, just like this pandemic is right now. It's gonna be something that's gonna be uncomfortable. It's gonna take a long time to recover from. You know, even Mount St. Helens was, was very isolated and it really only affected a small percentage of people in our state. Yeah. But, um, but an earthquake, like this magnitude is going to affect everyone from Vancouver Island all the way down to Northern California. And then it's going to have a ripple effect around the ring of fire around the world. And it's going to interrupt trade and the West Coast shipping and all of that for years to come. So there's things we need to do to prepare for this earthquake and tsunami because it's not a question of will it happen. It's a question of when it will happen. And so that's one of my goals is to help educate, help inform people about this this um, this threat. And it was during that time that we did a personal survival kit DVD that told people what they needed to know to prepare for this earthquake threat. And then we were asked to do one for small businesses 
because small businesses need to have a continuity plan. Large businesses do, but typically small to medium-sized businesses don't. So we did a business survival kit. And then at that time, the swine flu was coming out and uh, avian bird flu and uh, SARS. And health officials were talking about a potential worldwide global pandemic that's going to happen someday. So we did a film called Pandemic Survival Kit. But we did that film 11 years ago. And basically what we said is if you prepare for a worst case earthquake, you're going to have the supplies you need for a pandemic. And even more than that, you're going to be isolated and you're going to need to have certain supplies on hand. And so our family, we have, you know, an earthquake kit, which happens to work for just about any kind of disaster, including a pandemic, you know, and so those are some of the lessons that I've learned, you know, for the last 40 years leading right up to being relevant today to what's happening today. Yeah. I'm just kind of rambling on and on here, Brandon. Sorry. No, this is <laughs> this is all very fascinating. Um, so with the, the Earthquakes film, you started doing that, I mean, like you said, like 10 years before any sort – or eight, eight years before any interest or anything was going along with this. Um with your documentaries, you said it took you about 10 years with the fire below us one as well. Is is that pretty standard for documentaries to be in that like (laughs) eight to 10 year range? I I think so. I don't know. In my experience, it has been, it's, it's like you get an idea and it just takes a long time to uh, sell the idea. Now, if if we're able to sell an idea to a funder, then, uh, you know, it gets funding and it can be accelerated. But typically, you know, the ideas that we have, um, you know, take time to develop and take time to, to get interest. So, you know, in, in these type of films, I've gotten some interest in them and um, some, you know, you know, there's it doesn't have to take that long. But that's a good question. <laughs> but ask most even even like for George Lucas, how long it took him to develop and finally sell Star Wars. And, you know, now it's a major you know, major um, franchise. Right. Um, you know, many examples like that in Hollywood too. And um, we, we as a family, twelve years ago, got an got an idea to do a more of a faith based type of a supernatural series. Okay. And so, um, uh, twelve years ago, uh, we started working on that, and um, then ten years ago, we we actually completed a. Uh, uh, a, a pilot demo of that. We got interest from a few networks, but nobody ever really stepped up to finance that. But now um, we've got some interest from some private people, and we're now um, putting together our dream to do this um, this supernatural series. You know, and a lot of it came out of my heart of what I experienced at Mount St. Helens. You know, 40 years ago. <laughs> yeah. And just work work I've done. Um, uh, with history and racial reconciliation over the years, and uh, a lot of the things I've learned are, are going to be woven into this new series that we're doing. But it's going to be a narrative series, not a documentary series. All right. So, so it's going to you know we're going to take a lot of creative license with it, and just really telling some really good stories, and make it entertaining and fun for people to watch, but also hopefully answer some of their questions. Because what I found when I share my story of what happened to me at Mount St. Helens. A lot of people have had similar type of supernatural experiences, whether it was in a car accident or, you know, something traumatic that happened to them or, you know, just just being in a certain place and something happening, you know. We're going to deal with, um, you know, um, people have had experiences with UFOs and and even with Sasquatch, you know, Bigfoot, (laughs) you know, um, uh, these some for some people, those are very real things. And I believe them. And they're looking for answers to those things. And I, I think we have some ideas that are going to help people <laughs> and have some fun with it, too. Yeah, that's very cool. So you said you started that 10, 10 years ago? Yes, actually 12 years ago. And, 12 years ago? Uh, yeah. Okay, so then what, what's kind of been that process of getting that started then? Like now that you're, you're into it. Yeah, so, um, well, well um, even that process... 10, 12 years ago, we, we wanted to, because kind of here where we're at, on, on, there's not a lot of filmmakers here. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. it's not like a lot of films are actually even made in the Seattle area. There is a film community, but, you know, Vancouver, BC is actually the Hollywood of Canada. So we have friends that work up in the industry up there. But um, for us, 
uh, we we went looking for a community that we could learn from and grow from and um, you know you know just be part of and so we actually ended up moving our family to Hawaii seven years ago to 2012 um, moved our family there and uh, we had friends that were building a film studio there we got involved in the film industry in Hawaii uh, worked with the state of Hawaii in developing this and um, and then uh, just recently moved back uh, a few months ago to our home here on Kamano Island and then no sooner did we move back that somebody approached us said they were interested in, in investing in a film a local person actually okay and so so now we have some um, you know opportunity to create something and um, you know we're, we we hope to do this homegrown and work with our local community in it you know we're going to put out a casting call for finding actors we're going to you know try to hire as many people locally as we can and um um, you know, engage the local community in it too. You know, it's a very, it's going to be a very low budget, but um, we you know, we hope people will be interested and come alongside of us and help us with this project. And um, you know, it's really fun to re-engage friends and and people in the community here for it. Yeah. So that that was a. I was kind of curious because I know you guys had moved back recently, and I know you guys had come to visit, but the before you guys got that, you must have been. Were you guys planning on moving back to Hawaii then after? Um, we, we had hoped to kind of have a base of operation in Hawaii and here and maybe spend half our time between the two places. But yeah. um, right now, our family needs and what we're working on require us to be here full time. So okay. we pretty much transitioned back to our home on Kamano full time now. Nice. I mean, Hawaii is nice, but it's very difficult to work there. It's actually yeah. very difficult to live there nice place to visit and we have a lot of friends and a lot of history there in fact one of our sons still lives there and uh, he's he's somewhat involved in the film industry there still too okay yep very cool so then um so you've continued to to make and work on documentaries um so you've mentioned a few are there other ones that you've worked on during your your career yeah oh yeah many um um, it was after we, we sold our film on Mount St. Helens and National Geographic that um, I was kind of thinking back about some of the other things I was interested in. And one of them was the story about this Native American who refused to sell his land and the documentary I did about that. And um, um, I, I read a book that really helped me understand historical um, situations and how we can help help with injustice yeah. so for a lot of native tribes um there's uh, still an animosity still a lot of pain i know that in hawaii that's for sure because um there's a lot of protest against it, uh built construction of a new telescope in the dakotas there was a lot of protest against a, an oil li- oil line going through uh, a pipeline going through the native reservation and mm-hmm just a lot of issues that we still are dealing with um, from history. And uh, two of those for America are the, um, the mistreatment of Native Americans and the, um, the, the mistreatment of African Americans and the whole legacy of the slave trade and uh, just how the racial, isu- racial issues those have caused right. that are still, still hot points. And so um, after reading this book called Healing America's Wounds, I just thought, wow, this is a great tool. So I I started doing documentaries then on racial reconciliation as it related primarily to Native American, African American issues. And we ended up doing a series of films on slavery and the history of slavery. And we, we engaged our family in that and we took our whole family on these these tours where we would learn about history, learn about what happened there, and then um, um, try to try to do what we could to listen to people's stories, and then and then just kind of stand in the gap and say, "Will you please forgive us for these things that happened?" And for some people, that really touched a nerve in them that somebody would acknowledge what had happened in the past, and then somebody would just say, "I recognize this has been very difficult for you." Will you please forgive us for what happened? And and for some people, it really released a lot of emotion, a lot of forgiveness. So we did a film called Yokes and Chains. It was very critically acclaimed. It was broadcast on TV. It's been broadcast many times on Martin Luther King holidays, 
Um, because here's a group of people that are setting out to try to do something to help people with their healing process in this. Yeah. And then we, we've done, been working on a series of films also kind of addressing some of the Native issues and broken treaties and uh, things like that, too, and um, uh, just helping people in that process. Just wanted to jump in really quick here. Um, uh, I talked to Michael about this after the podcast, and he actually said um, for the next two months, so depending on when you're listening to this, this may not be valid anymore, but as of June 6th, for the next two months, um, he's actually provided a link and a promo code to watch all three of these documentaries that he's talking about in this uh, section. So be sure to check those out. I'm going to leave the link to those uh, in the podcast notes. And the promo code to use for that is watch for free. Um, so you go to the website, you'll click rent and then enter the promo code watch for free. Um, anyways, I'll have that in the notes. Uh, okay, back to the podcast. So uh, that's been, you know, kind of a theme in some of the documentaries we've done. Plus, we've just done a lot of um, films on um, mainly disasters and disaster as they relate to nature and to man. Yeah. (laughs) Man-made disasters, too. Yeah. Well, and and this is kind of jumping around a little bit, but I kind of want to touch back on the earthquakes in the Northwest film that you guys had done, all the research for that. What was kind of the... Over our, as you studied this and, and continued to go through it, what was kind of your, your takeaways from that? Um, takeaway is that that nothing is certain. Anything could change. You know, at any minute we could have a magnitude nine earthquake that would change our lives. I mean, could you imagine an earthquake on top of a pandemic? I mean, already right. our our medical services are overwhelmed. And, um, you know, you know, just think what that would do to our infrastructure. Um, you know, what, one of the things I learned also is that, um, um, you know, preparing, it's not about fear. It's not about, um, you know, being a prepper even. There's just practical things we can do. And for our own peace of mind, for my family and I, I mean, here we're doing all these documentaries talking about this stuff. But even for our own peace of mind, just taking these small little steps together as a family, I think helped all of us just to go on with life and not be paranoid or worried about it. Because we knew, we, we, we knew like for instance, when we were living in Hawaii, one morning we got these loud, annoying alarms on all of our iPhones. And it was the civil defense sent out a message saying, saying a missile alert, incoming nuclear missile to uh, Hawaii from North Korea. This is a real thing. This actually happened two what? years ago. Wow. And everybody got this message and everybody went into panic. Nobody had any warning of this. And my wife came and she said, is this for real? I said, well, it's not saying it's a test. <laughs> and in Hawaii, they have uh, hurricane tests, you know, like where they test the civil defense sirens once a month. Yep. This was not a test and it was not during that normal testing time. So I said, we have to, we have to take it like it's a real thing, you know, but we knew what to do. We, we knew we needed to shelter in place. So we started just buttoning up our condo and knowing if, if it was a direct nuclear blast, we were going to be blasted in seconds anyways. Nothing yeah. we could do about that. But likelihood was they would, they would strike the military base, which was 200 miles away. And then there'd be nuclear fallout that we need to prepare for. Yeah. So so that's the steps we started taking. My daughter, she worked at Starbucks. She called me. She says, Dad, what should I do? I said, you know what to do. And she she's she just told her manager because they didn't know what to do. Starbucks hadn't ever thought that one through. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and so she told everybody, we need to shelter in place. They locked the doors. They told everybody to go home, you know, or shelter in place with us. So they went into the back room. They they sheltered in place until they got the all clear sign. And it took the government probably close to 20 minutes to re- to figure out what had happened and how to send out a message saying this was a this was a mistake and then everybody got messages on their phones saying false alarm it was a mistake <laughs> and then you know but but it was something that for our family we knew what to do and we had our neighbors everybody coming running to us saying what do we do what do we do <laughs> you know? um so um the other thing was that we did a documentary we were hired by usgs and fema to do a documentary called Living with Risk, Earthquakes in America. And what we found out was that 41 of the 50 states have the potential for damaging earthquakes. 
So we um, we did a film um, interviewing state geologists from all these different states, and one of them was New York. And New York City actually has the threat of a 5.5 earthquake, so New York City is built on fault lines. And they came up with a plan of what to do with all of the debris from a 5.5 earthquake because there's a lot of unreinforced masonry buildings yeah. in New York City. So in a 5.5 earthquake, they would have to deal with all of this debris falling in the streets. So they had a plan put in place on 9-11 when, they, when, the, the, when the, 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 the towers were attacked and all that debris laying all over the streets. They pulled out their earthquake plan to, to, to put that into effect, what to do with all this debris from 9-11. So it's just practical things we can do. Can't remember your question really, but I think it was was what what is your takeaway from all this stuff about earthquakes? Yeah. But <laughs> so yeah. So there's a lot of lot of lot of really practical good things we can do and I think also for me Mount St. Helens was a big wake up call learning about Cascadia earthquakes and you know it was it was right when we were doing that right in the middle of doing that that on uh, February 21st 2001, there was a uh, 6.8 earthquake. It was the Nisqually earthquake, if you remember that. And um, it shook the ground for several seconds. And um, it was it was a pretty good shaker, but it was it was a tiny, tiny fracture on the subduction zone that broke. But when the whole subduction zone breaks, it's going to be thousands of times worse than that. Yeah. And um, But that was a wake-up call. That Nisqually earthquake was a wake-up call, just like the uh, the false missile alert, just like COVID nineteen, is a is a wake up call for us. Yeah, and it's how we deal with that wake up call that matters in our lives. How do we deal with the wake up calls that we get? For me, when Mount St. Helens, uh, when I went through that experience, that was a wake up call where I did not hit the snooze alarm and went back to my life as normal. My life changed from that point on. Everything I've done from that point in my life has changed. That was a definite wake-up call. So that's what these events are in our lives, is it's a wake-up call, I believe, to the things that are really meaningful and matter in life. For me, it was my spiritual life and finding that and finding you know, what that meant to me and finding my faith and, um, you know, and, and just a little bit about preparedness and just what that means, bringing about peace and security in my family. Um, you know, our vehicles have, you know, little backpacks with a few days supplies in them. You know, that's just a normal thing we do in the Lena yeah. family. <laughs> of course, Camino Island coffee is always in those <laughs> survival kits. We cannot survive without coffee. And, you know, and uh, Camino Island coffee is our favorite. Oh, awesome. Well, thank you. Appreciate that. Yep. That's a that's not that's not a, a wish I had. That's an essential in my checklist. <laughs> Oh, well, this has been, I mean, this has been so fascinating. Um, it's, you know, obviously you're, you've been doing storytelling and stuff for, for many, many years, and it definitely shows this has been completely fascinating as I've, as we've gone through everything. Um, and I know, like you said, at the beginning of this podcast, you've been, you are like inundated with work right now. Cause you guys are just, you know, you always work from home. So it doesn't matter that you're stuck at home. Um, so I really appreciate the time you've taken to, to talk with me today. Um, I like to end every podcast with some rapid fire questions. Um, so the first one is, do you have a lesser known or favorite location on Camino Island that you like to hang out? Um, well, I, I just really enjoy the new county parks and, um, my, my wife and I, kids and I, we go hiking through those parks almost every single day and it's just yeah, this is such a blessing to live here on Camino Island, and uh, I love these new county parks here. Yeah, no, I really enjoy them as well. Um, uh, pretend you have a friend coming from out of town visiting Camino. What would their first day look like here? Uh, first day would look like Camino Island coffee. They have to have that first thing. And then um, they they get a tour of our farm, and then we would probably go go hiking somewhere, especially if the weather's beautiful, just to show them the treasure here. You know, we usually take our friends to state park or, you know, down to the beach and, you know, go paddling or swimming or something in the summertime. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been, it is so neat to be able to live and work here. So, 
Um, all right. Who is an interesting hey. or, Oh, go ahead. No, okay. that's, I agree with you. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> um, who is an interesting or fascinating person in this community that I should interview next? Oh, Jack Gunter. If you haven't interviewed him. All righty. He's very, he's an icon around here. Very funny. <laughs> all right. Yeah. He's been mentioned before, so I need to get those lined up. It's, it's a little harder to line up things right now. Um, but as long as people are computer savvy, it, it works out. Yeah, so. Jeff, Jeff Johnson is another person, a good friend, a uh, very talented musician, internationally known for his music. And I uh, love Jeff. Worked with him on a couple of music video projects we've done with him. And um, yeah, Jeff Johnson would be a great guy to talk to. Okay, awesome. Um, all right, lastly, if you could have a message on a billboard on Camano Island, right as you're driving on the island, what would that say? Well, the first thing in my mind is just welcome to paradise. <laughs> it really is. I mean, we lived in Hawaii for seven years, but my heart was still always on Kamano Island. You know, it's just a very special place. When you come across that that bridge and come across the slough onto Kamano Island, you just you just feel that um, kind of more relaxed atmosphere. Even though you know you can bring your work here and it can be just as stressful as anywhere else, but just the solitude, the play, the beauty of it I think is uh, just makes it a special home yeah I agree and I think the other thing that uh, even when like you know if, if things are going wrong and, and things are stressful at work or something I think in the back of my mind it's always that you know I'm only five minutes away if I really need to I could go drive to the beach chill out for a half hour and then come back to work and, and tackle whatever so like even if I don't do that on a regular basis that mindset is still there that I could escape from everything breathe and then come back if I needed to Right on. <laughs> so, That's all great. right. Well, again, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Brandon. It was a lot of fun. All right. And Islanders, I will talk to you on the next one. Well, a big thank you to Michael Lee now for joining me on the podcast today. And thank you for listening. If you haven't already, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. Um, it really helps us be found by other Islanders like yourself. And for more information on this episode, you can go to commandocommons.com slash EP48. That's commandocommons.com slash EP48. Thanks for listening and see you next time.